Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of our weekly Exploring the Parsha class with Rabbi Rebecca Schatz and Rabbi Matt Shapiro. Hi, everybody. You are going to get two guest teachers today. Rabbis Shapiro and Schatz, I think, thought that it would be funnier uh, if you didn't know that you were <laughs> getting Rabbi Klickfeld and me instead of the two of them today. Um, so surprise, happy, uh, happy Adar, Chodesh Tov, V'nahafochu, flipping things around. Uh, you have a couple of different rabbis and uh, we are primed to do a uh, Parsha podcast. We still know Torah. We're still two rabbis. And, uh, and I don't know, I think you should be welcoming us maybe and not us welcoming you. It sounds like you all uh, are a, a micro community who's been at this for a while. So well, welcome, Rabbi Chorney and Rabbi Clickville. Thank you. See, thank you for taking that so seriously. I really appreciate that. Vinahafohu, right? So we're 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 in it. Yes, I want to welcome you as well. Oh, thank you. But but do you really know what this It's it's a fifty two minute meditation, right? That's what we prepared. Uh no. Oh, okay. No, we, we know. We're, we're good. Sure, I'm sure that two of you can Okay. Hey, you we're, know what? We're I was definitely... planning on doing stand-up, so is, is that is that about par for the course? <laughs> yeah, there, sort of. Yeah. Uh huh. Okay. There's a lot of there's a lot of interaction between the two rabbis that are usually on them. Oh, well. And, and, <laughs> I mean, I, I don't mean, and I mean interaction in uh, the loosest sense of the word. I, I'm so glad we're recording this. Um, that, that I look forward to sharing with them. Uh, well, I do, I do like Rabbi Klickfeld a little bit. I think, I think he's pretty, he's pretty cool. So, um, oh, good job. we can have, uh, we can have repartee. I just don't know how witty it'll be. <laughs> um, but we are prepared to talk Parsha. Um, so, uh, we're in Bereshit. Uh, wait, no, that can't be right. Uh, no, we're in, uh, we're about to end a book, actually. Um, so we're at Pekude, and I think Rack is going to kick us off with some Pekuding of Pekude. I will, I will, I will Pekude as best as I can. I, lo- I love, I love Pekuding. Uh, let me um, pull up a screen here. Tomorrow morning's Bar Mitzvah boy Matthew is going to is basically starting his drash by making a joke about. Um, dry humor and dry parshas and sometimes the parshas that seem to be the most dry are the ones that have the most exquisite pearls in them i did not feel that way in oh uh, october of 1999 when all of the members of my rabbinical school class got our assignments for our senior sermon because every rabbinical student gives us a sermon you know as a capstone project and you know, my friend got Yitro, Ten Commandments, and someone else got like a, something in the Joseph story, and I got Hakude, which meant that like my my uh, <coughs> culmination of rabbinic studies was going to be about uh, cubits and screens um, and planks and um, and uh, tanned tanned skins. Hakude um, is part two of a double parsha, which is um, not always doubled, but this year it happens to be. Uh, this is a leap year. Leap year, if you just do quick math in your head, reduces the double partials because you have more weeks in the 
lunar year, because it's a 13-month lunar year, to get through the parashot, right? So um, if you have more weeks in that year, then you're going to need a parsha to read in those weeks, and it's a very elegant system. Uh, so th- there are not no double parshas this year, but there are fewer double parshas than there would be in a normal year. And one of the parshas that often turns into two single parshas in a leap year is Vayakhel and Pekude. Um, Vayakhel and Pekude are basically uh, sometimes almost verse for verse with just the tense and the form of the verb changing, uh, duplicates of Parashot, Truma, and Tetzaveh um, from two weeks ago, uh, three from two and three weeks ago. Parashat, Truma, and Moshe Tetzaveh are God telling Moses to tell the Israelites, this is how you should build the Mishkan, the tabernacle. Then we have Kitisa in the middle, and I actually spoke about that last, last week in my sermon, one read as to why the golden calf is right in between. And then in Vayakhel and Pekude, in a way which is very odd for a text, which is very terse, right? The whole story of the binding of Isaac is 19 sentences. And yet we have, we have dozens and dozens and dozens of verses, including in Vayakhel and Pekude, which basically say, remember what God said to do in Terum and Saba? They did it. But it, but they, but each and every one, right? That, that, you know, making the curtain this cubit, they did it. Making, you know, making the square this size, they did it. So there's a lot of repetition that makes for either really hard Torah reading because, um, there are so many verses that are not storytelling and it's always harder to read verses that are not storytelling. But in some ways it's easy because if you know Vayakhel, if you know to Ruma and Tetzava well, then you can learn Vayakhel and Pekude well because it's very similar words, very similar trope. So what you're saying is it's the original Deuteronomy. It's the original uh, Deuteronomy, correct. Uh, if everyone doesn't get the joke, Deuteronomy meaning like the, 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 the second telling, the, se- the second law, um, which, by the way, is also the rabbinic, nick- the rabbinic nickname for the book of Deuteronomy is Mishneh Torah. Mishneh, the second, like Shnayim Torah, which is what um, Maimonides very intentionally named his book of Jewish law. He called it the Mishneh Torah because he basically thought that what he was writing in the 12th, uh, 12th century was the second coming of Torah, right? If you, if you, if you, if you couldn't really get to the details of Shrad, just read my book and you'll know exactly what to do in Jewish life. Yeah, no ego on that guy. No ego. Um, so uh, most of Pekude is what I just described, and we're not going to look at that at all. We're going to look at the real juicy, wonderful four or five verses that end the Parsha, because it's such an interesting um, departure from the architectural details that we. So if you see here in verse 33, verse 33, Vayakom he set up the courtyard, the closure, Saviv Lamishkan, around the tabernacle, Vayakom and around the altar, Vayitainet Masach Shar put up the screen that was going to be at the gate of that area. And then these words, words, Vayachal Moshe he finished the work. By the way, that Vayachal Moshe is probably very intentionally evocative of how the first chapter of Genesis ends, which is right? So, so God finishes creating the world with this root kal, kaflamid, like a complete, like a coal. And then Moshe, God's servant, completes God's home on that earth that God had created with a similarly constructed sentence. Moshe, finish the world. You see that little, that pay here? That just tells you there's a partial break. So if you're reading the Torah, like this is where like the 
like that someone would have pressed return on the typewriter, and the next paragraph um, begins the beginning of the line. Um, this would have been a really interesting place to end the Parshat Pakude and to end the book of Exodus. The work of building God's home on earth was done, but there are four more verses, and those are the verses that we're going to focus on. So I'm just going to um, read through them and try to give as little commentary them as possible because I want them to speak for themselves, but I'll demystify just some of the words for you. Then Rabbi Chorney's going to kind of uh, take your temperature and get a sense of, of what your reactions to them are, and then we'll come back and offer some of our own interpretation. Vayichas Anan et Ohel The cloud. What cloud? This is not a um, um, an environmental image. This is a divine image. The cloud of glory that was present for the Israelites at times during the wandering in the desert. Chas, covered at Ohel Moed, the tent of meeting. Uchvod Adonai, and the presence of God, to suggest that whatever the Anan is, the cloud, it is not coterminous with the presence of God. It is something different then, because otherwise you wouldn't have had an and in there. Right? It doesn't say the cloud, which represents the glory of God, covered the Ohel Moed, but the cloud covered the Ohel Moed, and the glory of God, and just if we can drill down on glory and those people who are in my Rashi class know they do this all the time. There's no such thing as a simple translation of any Hebrew word to any English word, certainly across thousands of years. So we can translate kvod as glory or honor because that's one of the ways we do it. But that doesn't, that doesn't mean what it, that's not necessarily what it means or to say it on a meta linguistic level, the brain image that you have unconsciously when I say glory or honor may not be the brain image that an ancient Hebrew speaker would have had when they heard the word kavod, and there's no way of resolving that. Kavod is also related to the root kaf bet dal, which means heaviness, something of substance. So anan is diaphanous. It's a cloud. Kavod, Adonai, is in some ways the non-diaphanous, the non-airy um, presence of God, something of, 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 of mamash, something of, of realness. So that aspect of God, Malay, filled the Mishkan. Okay? So if you want to try to imagine it, the Mishkan is the larger structure, and God's like full kavod and glory is everywhere, right? Almost like uh, I don't know, I don't know why the, the this is the image that comes to mind, but like you know, um, there, there are these things called spray insulation, where if your walls are too thin, you can open a wall and and stick a hose in there, and it sprays insulation, and so now there won't be um, sound traveling from one room to the next. Like it fills all of the, all of the area, right? Or I don't know, you know, when you tent a home for termites, right? So every cubic inch of the area is filled with the thing. Kvod Adonai was everywhere in the Mishkan. And in addition to that, the, the cloud was over one part of it, the tented meeting. Okay. That's verse 34. Velo yachol Moshe levo omoed. We hear something which I consider to be at least at first glance, very odd. Moses was not permitted to enter the Ohel Moed, this tent of meeting, the inner one of the inner chambers of the Mishkan, Kishachan Alav Hanan, while the cloud was there. So Moshe builds a house for God. When God is present there in the cloud, Moshe can't go in. And when God's presence, Kvod Adonai, when the heaviness of God is filling the Mishkan, Moses is staying on the outside. Right. Can I ask you a question, Rabbi Clickfeld, on the on the shot of that as they're getting through the grammar? 
because yeah. I happen to agree with you on something. So you're translating it differently and I think correctly, uh, more, more to the, there is no shot, but more to the plain meaning of the text than this translation gives it. But key could mean a lot of things. And you're translating key here as when. And they translate it as because, which I think a lot of modern Hebrew speakers would sort of like go to. So if you could just like maybe elucidate where or that's popping out from for you. Yeah. So so in modern Hebrew, key is almost only because in ancient biblical Hebrew, key is both because and when and for and while. I think in this particular case, for me, the when and the because are essentially synonyms because because. Uh, because, 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 because one of the wonderful things he does, um, the, the, whatever is happening in the Mishkan, God is filling it. And while that's happening, because it's happening, Moshe, for a reason which is inscrutable to me, can't enter. Right? Because you can imagine the exact opposite. When God came down from the heavens to fill the presence of the temple, stores open. Come, come meet God. Isn't that the point? Right? Aren't we beckoning God in with our korbanot and our prayer? Like, God, come, I'm, my, my heart is open. But now we're learning God is there in the doing the very indwelling for which the Mishkan was built. Moshe can't go in. And if Moshe can't go in, how much more likely is it that the Israelites can't go in? And then, in case we misunderstood verse 35, but once the cloud rose up and was no longer inhabiting and in, um, dwelling upon the Mishkan, the Israelites could continue on their travels. So once again, it suggests that when, when God was present, two things that are not necessarily logical extensions of what has happened up until now were the case. Number one, no one could enter. Number two, they were paralyzed. They couldn't move. Right. They, 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 they were stuck. And remember, the whole purpose of the desert wandering is movement, getting towards the land of Israel. When God is there, they can't make progress towards their destination. But once God removes God's self, now they can continue. But if the cloud didn't go up and do Aliyah and rise above the Mishkan, the low Yisu ad Yom They could not travel until the day upon which God removed God's self from the tabernacle. And this is how the book of Exodus ends. Ki anan Adonai ala mishkan yomam. The cloud of God was on the mishkan during the day, by which I think we're, trying, we're, we're almost uh, intentionally reading that as during the day, nearly every day. At nighttime, what we're calling the Anan became a fire, because you can't see a cloud at nighttime. Mm-hmm. In the eyes of the entire house of Israel throughout their traveling. It is not an impossible read of these verses to say that the greatest obstacle to the Israelites reaching the land of Israel was God's presence among them. Now, maybe that's intentional because God is delaying this experience so that the generation of the golden calf can can die out and the and the generation of the spies that's going to happen coming up is going to is going to die is going to die out but right now it seems that in order to have communion with god here you have to prevent your progress in getting to the place that god is actually asking you to go so i find it really interesting that the book of shmot and this is just shot right now because we haven't even looked at commentators 
ends in that at least single, if not double paradox. Last thing I'll say before opening Rabbi Chorney, the book of Genesis, Breshi, ends with the, with the pre-Mosaic Israelite people who at that point are just a tribe stuck, stuck in Egypt. Not yet. It, they don't know yet they're about, they're going to be enslaved, but they're in the place from which it's going to be possible to, very hard to extract themselves. And the book of Exodus, interestingly, ends with the people in some ways stuck, stuck in a hug with God that actually uh, got in the way of their going where they were supposed to be going. That's my intro. Awesome. Uh, what version of Safaria did you have in uh, 19... Uh, <laughs> when you gave your senior sermon? Yeah, the, It's the version of knocking on my colleague's door and saying, do you have this book? Because I need it. <laughs> oh, I, I also used to knock on my uh, colleague's door in um, what was called Goldsmith uh, and yell at them for having stolen it off of my shelf, usually without my... Uh, permission. Um, and it was always the volume that I needed. Um, yes. Always. Uh, okay. I'm going to screen share it, a version of those verses that is all in a paragraph form so you can look at it together. And I'd like to hear what are your kushiots as uh, Rabbi Schatz frames it. What are the questions that arise in your mind when you are looking at these verses all together? Um, what are those big questions? I'll, I'll collect them up a little. I'll take a little note. So jump in. You can unmute yourselves. Karen. It kind of makes, well, it kind of makes sense and it kind of doesn't. That if God is there, you're not moving. And it is being awestruck. And, uh, but why can't Moses go in is my big question. Yeah. Why can't Moses go in? Not Great. Nice. Not nice. It, it, it's not nice. Isn't the whole point that Moses is supposed to be able to go in? It's called the Ohel Moed. It's supposed to be the tent of meeting. If you can't go in, it's going to be hard to meet. Okay. Renee. <laughs> um, so it says that when the cloud lifted, the Israelites were able to set out, but it doesn't say anything about Moses. Hmm. Did he set out? Did he lead them out? Great. Is Moses automatically included in those Israelites? He does seem to be referenced separately. Is he always going with them? Is he not? Um, that's very interesting. All right. Anyone else? What seems challenging? Michael. What begs the question? Yeah, Michael. Yeah, it does seem to indicate uh, sort of a difference in the people from one of where they had just come out of slavery to to one of a people that is is on the move, even though at times they can't move, maybe because of the presence of God in the in the tabernacle, but they are moving as a people. And uh um you know, I uh, of course uh you know I'm I'm reminded of of, of something that Rabbi Clickfeld said in uh I think in the final Parsha in a in a Devar he did in the final Parsha uh before uh before um Simchas Torah where um where you know when Moses when Moshe was not allowed to go in to the to the uh promised land uh he he sort of he tried to go in but he didn't he, you know he uh 
he 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 didn't uh, go you know go wasn't allowed and uh, Rabbi Quickfellow I think talked about uh, his uh, grandfather or great grandfather great grandfather I think anyway the idea of of when somebody knows they uh, as Moshe you know he became much more humble through this experience I think he. He so he steps away in a sense, and also here, uh, where he his job was to get the get the Israelites to know that they needed to move on move on their own, and uh, and they needed to act, and in a sense they did act. They all brought things to build the uh, to create the Mishkan, you know. Yeah. Sometimes, Michael, I think about the existential cycle of when we are in the Torah's story. So if you follow me for just a second, uh, Moshe has already been up to the mountain and received Torah, by the way, twice, right? Because he shattered the tablets and then goes back up there. So Moshe has now heard all of the Torah. So Moshe knows how the Torah ends. Now, it depends on who you ask. Later, rabbinic commentators will say that's not really where the Torah story starts. The Torah story really starts after that. And so the the received Torah story starts later. This all gets a little bit meta and confusing. But if you really want to take it from that angle and take the timeline of the story, the, the chronology of the story like that, then Moshe really knows. Moshe knows that he's not destined to go even before later in the story when we hear the conversation happen between Moshe and God when he's told that he's not going to go into the land. It's really us being told at that point that Moshe is not going into the land. And so that that kind of reinforces to me your your point, which is perhaps that's what's going on there. Let's hear from Bonnie and then I'll come back to you, Karen. So if every time they traveled, they did have to disassemble the tabernacle so the cloud couldn't really be in it when they did that. Um, and and I think that the cloud stayed with them, e- even though that it wasn't within the tabernacle. So I don't know if that's a question, but it's a thought I had. Right. So what happens to the cloud? And as Rabbi Klickfeld d- described it, right, the fluffy part. Well, you didn't just say fluffy. But I was thinking fluffy, the fluffy part and the not fluffy part of it. Uh, what happens to the to those parts of it? I'm thinking of the you, you didn't. I thought this. I don't know if you said this out loud. I'll have to listen back to the recording or you can tell me. But I was thinking Kaved. I'm thinking about like the weightiness of the cloud. Right. So it's like the fluffiness and the weightiness as I watch actually some of these uh, heavier rain clouds pass closer to us. I didn't uh, say that. But yes, that was the thought. Yeah. And so the idea is like, what happens to those as the physical deconstruction of that mo, um, what's the word I'm thinking of that, uh, modular and ne- necessarily, uh, portable Mishkan is being deconstructed and then reconstructed. Is it, you know, what's the, what's the following that's happening there? So I also have that question. I think it's a good question. Karen and then Gary. Might this have anything to do with a kind of meaning? When we're with God, you know, we, some of us, some of you may go every day to the shul, and some of us may not. And I'm just wondering if it has anything resting and 
Sure. Yeah. And, and, um, and I, uh, I will add a question to your question. Your question prompts a question for me, which is why is there no other obvious timeline given to us in this verse? There doesn't seem to be a rhyme or reason other than, uh, when that cloud lifted, that was giving them the time. It doesn't give us a Shabbatiness, a rhythm. Right? Right. Shabbat is necessarily rhythmic. Okay, great. Gary? Um, is it on? Yeah. Uh, my question is, how big is the cloud? Is it exactly over the tabernacle? Is it, is it, you know, it goes bigger? Because I, it could be a tabernacle could just literally be this. So people could be outside the cloud and to have a sunny day and uh, be inside the tabernacle and just not be able to see anything. I just don't know how big that area is. So I'm so glad you asked that question. And we'll take that as the last kushia because even though I'm going to toss this back to Rabbi Klingfeld for the first shot at giving uh, commentary if he wants this, one of the commentaries that I would like to speak to is to take the both, both the Ramban and also from a Midrash Tanhuma, which here is not quoted by Rashi, but often Rashi pulls from from that ancient Midrash, collection of Midrash um, that uh, speaks to that idea of sort of the the size of of that um, cloud. So I'm glad you asked because they had those same questions and I had that question too. So I don't know, Rack, did you get a book off your shelf and find something interesting or did you have something in mind? Well, I can see how Everett Fox, um, who has one of the more uh, lyrical translations of the Torah into English, doesn't mean it's accurate. It's just beautiful. Sure. Uh, dealt with these verses and they're sort of interesting. But I'll, I'll share them with you. Um, Safari has Everett Fox's commentary but not mm-hmm. his actual translation. Mm-hmm. So I can actually share the screen here. Um, and then I'll share with you some of my thoughts about what I think these verses might be telling us across the century. The way Everett Fox treats Yud, Yud, Hey, Vav, Hey is by rendering it into English letters as Y-H-W-H. And I don't even know how to say that out loud. So I'm just going to say God. I'm just going to say God when I get to that part of the, now the, now the cloud covered so you can listen to this while you're comparing what Rabbi Tony is sharing. Now, the cloud covered the tent of appointment. He calls it a tent of appointment rather than we say the tent of meeting. It's actually a good translation because Moed is from the word Ya'ad, which means something um, like something appointed or something um, um, indicated. And the glory, he goes glory, not, not presence or heavy. The glory of God filled the dwelling he calls dwell, he calls tabernacle, Mishkan, not tabernacle, because what the hell is a tabernacle? He calls it dwelling, because the word Mishkan is root, is, has as its root, Shin Kaf Nun, Nun, which means to dwell. So he just calls it the dwelling. Moshe was not able to come into the tent of appointment for, he turns the key not into a because or a when, but for, for is kind of like because, for the cloud took up dwelling on it, and the glory of God filled the dwelling. Whenever the cloud goes up, he does an interesting thing here and turns it into like a like an ongoing present tense. Whenever the cloud goes up from the dwelling, which is an interesting choice because um, it's uve ha'alot. Ha'alot is like a – it's built from the word Allah, which means to go up, but it's an interesting form. It's not quite a gerund like going up. That would be aliyah. It's like, it's like in the going up. And in the going up. And in the going up. And in, and in the going up of the cloud, which is rendered by Reverend Fox as when, whenever the cloud goes up from the dwelling, 
So it, he turns it from like a gerund noun into like a present tense concept. The children of Israel march on upon all their marches. If the cloud does not go up, they do not march on until such time as it does go up. For the cloud of God, Ever Fox now puts in, in parentheses the word is, because there's no is, there's no present tense uh, of the verb to be in the Torah. For the cloud of God is over the dwelling by day, and fire is by night in it, before the eyes of all the house of Israel upon all their marches. I just want to share with you as another way of, of rendering what do I think these verses are all about? So that's really the question for any Jew to be considering, not just what the words mean, but what's the religious meaning for us as we contend within generations. Listen, I think that there is something paradoxical, maybe intentionally so, about our seeking out intimacy and indwelling with the Holy One. Because on the one hand, when it happens, if it happens, it's exaltation and it's ecstasy and it's spiritual ascent and it's why we're involved in this whole thing called religion. And when it happens, it sometimes can stultify progress in society and even in life itself. You might know people who are so impassioned with their experience of the divine in their life that it actually gets in the way of marching forward. And I find in these verses a important teasing kind of hint that suggests we both want you to go to the Mishkan and meet God there. And we also want you to get out of there because it's actually not until you get out of there. That might be, that might happen because God has left that you're able to actually look in front of you and decide where to march forward. And so the fact that God that sometimes when God, as it were, removes God's presence from your life, it might not be a punishment. It might be an indication that you've, you've done enough naval gazing and now it's time to march towards a promised land whether it's a, a geographic promised land or a conceptual promised land right even i and even rabbi chorney who are rabbis and teachers and meditators right it's not how we spend 24 hours a day right? uh, and i actually find that people in the religious world who are who are just mystics or just yeshiva bachers who are doing almost nothing other than trying to meet god in the mishkan they might be getting something out of religious life that I'm not getting, but they're actually also missing something out of life that I'm getting. And I at least choose to see that in these verses, choose to see the book of Exodus ending with God saying, you want me, but not too much of it. You want me to be close to you, but not perpetually. And part of the relationship with me is separating from me so that you can go on with your lives. That's one of the things that it means to me as I consider it now. And it's actually, in some ways, not that dissimilar from how I understood it 23 years ago when I was sermonizing about it. Before I jump in to respond to that idea, it uh, looks like Karen wants to respond to that idea, and far be it from me to, to stand between Karen, Cass, sharing, and all of us, because I actually really want to hear what you have to say. Well, it, it reminded me of God saying, you're doing my work on earth. So go do my work. So it was, don't stay just here. Get out there and do what I want you to do. Uh, it's, it's 
it's beautiful and and kind of a cousin to the idea that it reminded me of as you were sharing that idea, which is it's also a reminder of who's in charge in that relationship. Because one of the things that religious fanaticism or rather obsession with religious ritual can do is to give us the false impression that we're the ones who are the ultimate power, who have the ultimate control, who are supposed to have the power, the authority. It's one of the things that I despise the most about our system of kashrut in this world or over religious authorities who would deny people identity, that kind of a thing. And uh, gods being in control of the of the of the journeys that the Israelites are are taking, a sort of a reminder of I'm still in control here. Right? We just said the Israelites are in charge of celebrating their own seasons. Right? They received Rosh Chodesh, so they get to decide their own, appoint their own times and seasons, and they get to appoint their own priests and everything. But you move when I say you move. So I like that idea, Rabbi Klikfav, that like there's a, a religious fanaticism that could so easily get us um, thinking that we're the ones who are, in, who are in charge. Like, oh, we're in charge now where we have our autonomy, but it's sort of a tamping of that autonomy. And it looks like Michael has something to say, too. Well, I, well, I just wanted to to amplify uh, a little something that uh, Rabbi Crickfield said, and that is that uh, there's a time, there is a time for learning and a time for uh, um examining in a time for closeness uh to uh to god and and i and i'm just very happy that i am part of a congregation that is doing that like we're doing now but then also coming up to shabbat having uh involvement with the uh, the refugees tonight and uh and after and 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 after Havdalah, and uh, the point is that that is action in the world, and and how we have to, and I think the the learning makes us think about that uh, in deliberate ways, and makes us, in a sense, uh, better stewards of uh, what. God wants us to do in this world and actualizes our own self, uh, our own unique, uh, self selves in doing that. And, and that, that is the example that Temple Beth Am is, uh, is celebrating in a meaningful way tonight. Right. And Michael, I will say in full candor, there are those in our community who feel as you do that that balance is just right. And there are those in our community who feel that we do that too much. And there are those in our community who feel that we do it too, too little, right? There's some who say, like, en- enough of you are sitting in the round and singing harmonies. Go out there and change the world. Like, like the purpose of, the purpose of being involved in the religious community is, is so that your praying and your study will go make you be activists for the good. And others are saying, I'm, my activism is elsewhere. I come to shul to study and to pray. Like that, that's what I want out of my Jewish ident- identification not to be told when and how to be an activist because there's so many different things for which it's proper to be activating for. And I will also say that, you know, listen, we're living in a time where it's both the case that there seems to be one cascading, one cascading catastrophe after another at a pace that just seems abnormal. And it's also the case that we're living in an era where we're aware of every worldwide catastrophe as it's happening, which means that there's an impression 
that there might be more of it. I don't know. Was maybe there were terrible things happening every day in 1729, but the people in, in who were whatever was Ghana was called back then were not aware what was happening in whatever you know Minnesota was called back then, right? So we're also like aware of every individual thing, and because we're aware of all that, like you could make the legitimate argument then that every moment of leisure and every moment of not contributing to helping to assuage and fix the brokenness of the world is um is rank selfishness and self-indulgence right why how could i ever justify going to see a movie when there's a raging war in ukraine and we haven't yet you know solved the pandemic and, and add your thing to the list right and i would think that it's, it's just no healthy way to go through life um only always focused on the very wordy things that one could be focusing on. And I'm seeing the same thing in these texts here. And I don't, that doesn't mean that's what the text means, which is what they mean to me that one could make the argument. If I'm a Jew and I'm a religious Jew and I'm a God Jew, then why would I ever do anything other than stay in the Mishkan and wait for God to meet me there? Why would I ever leave the sanctuary? And I had the Torah saying, sometimes you need to leave the sanctuary or God's going to leave the sanctuary saying nothing's happening. Like, like the, the restaurant's closed. That, like, like go, go to your next encampment and I'll meet you there. Right. Um, otherwise, like if, if we were writing the Torah, as it were, right, we could say, well, there's no reason for, for God to leave. God can hang around as we're, as we're making our progress and God will, the, the, you know, the, you know, the, we'll, we'll be aware of God's presence as we're walking through the desert. And the Torah says, no, God removes God's self. And it's only upon that removal that progress is allowed to be made, which to me suggests Sometimes the focus of a God-focused life and a God-driven life is a separation from God. Let's give Bonnie a chance to speak up, and then I'm going to share, but I want enough time not only to share, but also to hear your responses to what I share. So we'll give Bonnie some space, and then uh, and then I'll share some other commentaries. So when I was listening, I thought of what I'm going through right now, and that is my period of mourning for... Larry, and and I related to the idea of the cloud and the covet of God being with me at some time, especially I've been going to, to, to Minion every, every morning, and um, and I also journal. I, I have a book on uh, Kaddish where there's a, a quote of Jewish wisdom every day that I, I reflect on. And so during that time, it's it's as if that cloud is there, but I know that I have to just, at some point, I have to stop and and find something in 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 life to to, to do with my time now, um, and get back to living, go on my journey like the Israel. So that was what came to me. I love that, Bonnie, because uh, kind of like Everett Fox, you've brought it into the present tense, right? It's not just a rhythm of God's glory or of grief or whatever else might cloud over and then relieve us of that cloudiness from time to time. And we have to hope that we can have the kind of things in our life like journals or community or whatever else that can provide that kind of rhythmic relief um, from whatever that um, grief or whatever else for any of us might be the heavy thing in our life. Um, I'm going to put in the chat here a collection of sources in case people want to take a look at them. 
I would rather look at your faces and share with you verbally, also because this is becoming a podcast. So uh, I'll share the sheet such that people who are listening to the podcast can also listen. I want to share with you two kushiot that many of our ancient texts seemed to have about this set of verses. So uh, this set of verses we're focusing on because uh, I don't think Rabbi Klickfeld has stopped thinking about them since his senior sermon. Uh, mine was Vayigash. It was, it was a lot easier, but I had to, if you think about the calendar, I had to do it a lot earlier in the year. So that was, you know, I had less time in my senior year of rabbinical school to to prepare for the <laughs> for my senior sermon, uh, I was less less refined. Um, I, I'm a, I'm a little afraid to look back at my senior sermon. Anyway, so we're looking at these verses, and they're not verses that I've spent all that much time on before, unlike some rabbis who are here. And I'm fascinated by two problems that, in particular, as I mentioned before, Ramban and Midrash Tanhuma have answers to. I don't know if you like the answers. I kind of like their answers. But one of the problems that we see is that there seems to be a contradiction with all of these verses about God's being in the Ohel Moed or not in the Ohel Moed. If God has to leave the Ohel Moed in order for Moses to go in there, how are they meeting What exactly is happening here? There seems to be a bit of a contradiction. And if you go further up in the Parsha, there also seems to be a contradiction of other verses as to when Moshe is entering, when God leaves. There's a very unclear situation about who is leaving when and not just for whomever brought up this issue is Moshe. Oh, when Renee did, is Moshe included in the Israelites? But also, if God is always leaving the tent of meeting, how is it a tent of meeting with God? That's one question. The other question is, if God is melo, if God is filling the tent of meeting, that seems to be a problem because then God is departing from the rest of the world. Isn't that a problem? Okay, so two answers that I really liked. First of all, the both of these answers speak to me in a way that I think we can all take into tefillah with us, prayer with us. Um, shocker, I'm a cantor, so this this goes right to tefillah for me. We all are familiar. Everyone who's on this, uh, who's who's engaging in this right now, I'm certain are familiar with the line, which I believe Rabbi Klegfeld comes from Yechezkel, Kadosh, 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 Adonai Tzvaot, Malochola Aretz, Kevodo. I think it's found a couple times in Tanakh, but yeah, Yechezkel. And in that line, we have holy, 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 or glory, uh, um, sacred, sacred, sacred. Adonai Tzvaot is Adonai, the God of hosts. Melochul Haaretz Kavodo. The whole world is filled with God's Kavod, this, this Kavod, right? And this answer that Ramban gives, Nachmanides gives to what the heck is the deal with God filling the Mishkan, the tabernacle, helps me with that line too, which is that, oh, it's Isaiah. Thank you. I knew it was a prophet. That was pretty, okay. So, uh, no, it is Isaiah. Okay. So, Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. So, Malochla Aretz Kavodo. Here we have Malo, the tent of meeting. Uh, f- filling the tent of meeting. How is it that God isn't departing from the rest of the world? It's because it's melo kivodo. What is filling the tent of meeting? Not God, 
but God's kavod. It's the kavod itself which seems to be an entity separate and apart from God. Just as we can experience the Shekhinah as an aspect of God, Ramban, who is not much of a mystic in most of Ramban's commentary, it would seem, though I'm not an expert, uh, has this rather mystical approach from my perspective that the kavod of God is a different aspect of God than God, God's self. And so it's actually the kavod of God, the glory of God, this kavodiness of God that's filling the tent and not God, God's self. To extend that concept, what about the fact that God seems to be filling this tent of meeting or this kavod is filling the tent of meeting? Where's God the rest of the time? If you followed Ramban's, um, if you, if you follow Ramban's, uh, explanation, you might say, well, it's God, uh, Ramban might answer that problem, that kushya, by saying, well, God is everywhere else and God's kavod is in the tent, right? But Ramban didn't ask that question. Uh, Midrash Tanhuma answers this question instead and gives it as a story, which I love because I grew up in San Diego and I used to go down to La Jolla to the caves and it tells a story of a sea that fills sea caves. And in the Midrash, the image is painted of a sea that comes up in high tide and fills caves. And it says that the sea is no lesser for filling the caves, but the cave can be filled. It reminds me of what Rabbi Kligfeld and many of us, I'm sure in echoes of Rabbi Kligfeld say to parents who have a second or a third or a fourth child, which is that we wonder how is it possible that our heart could get any bigger and make space to love yet another child. And yet it does. And yet it does. And yet it does. There's always more room for love. God's infinitude makes space for that. Right. And so when God would fill the tent of meeting, we have to imagine whether it's the kavod, you want to buy into Ramban's painted idea, or you want to just go with the idea that Midrash Tanhuma is painting, which is that God is filling that cave of the Ohel Moed and also still filling the world, we have to buy into the infinitude of God, that God can be there and also be everywhere else. Now, I'll just add one more image, and then I'd love to hear your reactions to this. I also find myself as a parent regularly saying to one of my children, just because my attention appears to be with one of my kids doesn't mean that my love has departed from you or that my attention has departed from you to my other child. That's a very important and difficult thing to convey and will probably take a lifetime of parenting to convey, but that's really hard. And as an only child, I never had to experience that as a recipient, but as a parent of two kids, I am constantly navigating that concept. And I'm sure people could think about that in terms of supervision and, uh, and, um, re- reporting, uh, mentees or folks who work underneath them, um, in a, in a work system. You know, just because we're not right there and present and witnessing in that moment doesn't mean that our love or appreciation or respect has departed from that person who we're not with. So I, I appreciate the idea of an infinitude of presence, even when that presence isn't felt in the same fullness that might be observable in the same way. I would love reactions, questions, pushback. Any thoughts? Rabbi Clickfeld, you can 
respond to. Or... I agree with you. <laughs> you you agree with with the ancient rabbis I quoted. <laughs> I agree with the part that you were talking about in terms of the love of children and whatnot, multiple children and or multiple grandchildren. Well, I, th I think the uh, way what you said is beautiful because uh, we never know what we're going to be presented with on any given day and how we have and and what guides us is, uh, uh, you know, something that we you know, we're guided to respond with love to how, and we have to respond. It's that response that counts. And uh, you're responding to something needed by one of your, your children and, and uh, expressing that uh, to uh, the other, that, that you're not going to be absent. And that in a sense, uh, yeah, I, I, I see where, the the parsha and what we've been studying this hour uh, rings true to that because uh, and, and from the from the other ideas that you've uh, floated with uh, uh, the presence is the presence is there but also it's an infinity kind of thing. It may so, be depending on one one's perspective the apex of heresy or the apex of like um, religiosity to say that one of the most important things that a person can learn about what the Torah says about a relationship with God is something about our relationship with other people. And the reason why that might be heresy is because someone might say, wait, no, this is, this is a religious modality. This is, don't try to turn God into a metaphor. God is God. And so don't try to say, ah, well, I don't know how to make some of the God stuff, but this really helps me thinking about a relationship with a spouse or a friend or a child. But one could also make the argument that um, in addition to or to reify that which our tradition says about the God concept, I try to live that out in my relationship with others. So, for instance, the, the philosopher Martin Buber, when he wrote about I thou in, in German, I forgot what it, what it sounds like in German, not that I would understand it. And it sounds funny, whatever it is, um, the notion that our relationship with most things and with most people are are as an it. Right. An it meaning a, an object, something from which I can get something, right? Whereas our intent with God is to be in a moment of I vow. That was his, that's a clunky English version of probably a similarly clunky philosophical German saying that I want to, I want to turn to God and you're not an it. It's not because I, I, I'm not, it's not a Misha Barak. I'm not asking you to heal me, but you're, you're a full you. You're a full thou. You're, you're an other in, in an intimate way in a relationship with me. And of course the, Paradox being the moment that you realize that you might be in an I thou relationship with God, the moment is over. Because once you're analyzing it, the bubble has burst. So I think I kind of know sometimes maybe when I might be in that kind of a moment, sort of with a divine being or my conception of a divine being. But I certainly know when I'm in that moment with a friend, colleague, spouse, or child, right? And so I find it to be the act, a great acting out of religiosity to say, Ah, what my tradition invites me to think about in my relationship with the divine plays out in one of those moments when I'm with my child and I've forgotten that I'm in a moment. I'm just, we're almost one person in that moment. And as soon as I realize it, it's broken and I'm analyzing it. But for, but for three seconds, we were, we were, we were a unified soul, right? And we were in an I thou. So similarly, either 
these sources are supposed to be teaching us something exclusively about the religious experience and what it means to be um, uh, in relationship with, but sometimes even suffocated by God. And we're not supposed to be creating a, a therefore in terms of our relationship with children, friends and spouses, or maybe that's exactly what we're supposed to be doing, right? You know, are, are there, you know, is, is it the case that the only way that, you know, work on the, on the clergy projects at Temple Betham can happen if Rabbi Chorne and I are in the same room or in the same room, same Zoom and talking about it and engaging and each of our presences are filling the space and there's no way to get things done if that doesn't happen. And sometimes there's also no way of getting things done unless we separate from each other and stop talking about it and going to do it to, to make a very prosaic example, right? So, um, I, don't know if I'll ever resolve the question of whether or not it's more or less religious to be thinking about applications of some of these God images in our everyday interactions. Yeah, um, I I don't know either, but I know that I am constantly doing that. Uh, I'm constantly grafting it because I am exploring my relationship with God through the acting out of better relationships on a horizontal plane to be kind of crass about it. Um, and, um, uh, only crass because I don't believe that my relationship with God is strictly vertical. Uh, so, um, and I agree, Michael, I, I think we're both talking about the re- relationship with others being a reflection of the way that I'm grappling with my relationship with God grappling really. Um, and, uh, by the way, it's ich and du and, uh, and I, I also found out that uh, I and Thou is a progressive rock band because when I looked it up, that's what I got. So I, the more you know, um, something new I learned today. Um, I have an interesting note kind of to, to end on, like something really curious that I found in the Talmud. Should we end on like a curiosity from the Talmud? Um, something really interesting. It's on the source sheet. They, they end with a bow. They end with a what? A bow. <laughs> a bow? Well, they tie it all together. Oh, well, I don't know if I have a bow. Okay, well, I can try to make it tied into no, a bow. Parshat par bow. bow. The beginning of Shmo, you're confused. That's exactly what I was thinking, and I was trying to figure it out. Where I was like, "Is bow? Wasn't that President Obama's dog?" Like, I just my brain went so many places. Okay, and and um, Bo, and, and bow ends with a bashalach. And what were you just? Were you just shake and baking, Renee? What, what were you doing? Were you like churning butter? <laughs> I spent the, the class preparing, I spent the class preparing for Shabbat. I was shaking a dressing that I just made. And like your hands were going through the Golden Gate Bridge as you were. It was the, it was the weirdest image. There you go. Rabbi, ask her, ask her to now twirl her challah. I haven't gotten to the challah yet. I haven't gotten to the challah. Okay. I haven't finished the cooking. I haven't talked I long enough. We haven't talked long enough, which is the first time that's ever happened. Um, okay. Talmud and Yoma. So like, what if, what if actually Moshe were allowed to enter the tent of meeting and we are getting the verse all wrong, says the Talmud in Yoma. Okay. So the rabbis in Yoma want to resolve also this issue where they say it just can't be. Right? It, it, it simply can't be that, uh, in fact, I think I'll screen share for this last bit that they're really bothered by this idea that it just, that it would be uh, that Moshe wouldn't be allowed into the tent of meeting, maybe ever. They're really bothered by it. And so, uh, and so they, they say, what could it be that it teaches us? So Rabbi Zarika raises this 
contradiction ha- has it has an issue between verses before Rabbi Elazar. Some have the story a different way. It is written in one place that Moshe was not able to go in. We now know what that means. Because the cloud was shachaning, it was dwelling upon it. There's also a verse way back in the 24th verse that says that Moshe somehow entered a cloud and they don't like this. It seems to, one seems to really contradict the other. So they said it must be that Moshe was allowed to enter in the cloud. So what could it mean that he wasn't allowed to enter? It must be he wasn't allowed to enter without the, not only the invitation of God, but God bringing Moshe in. Milamed shet tifaso hakadosh baruchu lemoshe vehevio be'anan. That he would grab Moshe, that, that, that God would grab Moshe and bring Moshe into the cloud when it was time. And, you know, I, I'm rereading this now in light of what you said, um, Rabbi Klickfeld, in your, in your read of the verses that we uh, have been looking at for the last hour, which is um, uh, on the extreme, more extreme end of piety and um, what it can mean to involve oneself too far without having the necessary cloud to descend uh, and not be pulled in. And I think that... Uh, I think that the question is, what are, what are those moments when we are being grabbed by the Holy One or by our Holy Community to be pulled all the way in further than we otherwise do? Most of the time we are in a, in a regular rhythm with our religious piety. And sometimes we are being pulled right into it. And I think of those being pulled in moments as the being pulled in sometimes involuntarily through the death of a loved one. I think of being pulled in as voluntarily saying yes to being a gabi for a minion or being on the library minion committee or saying yes to being on the board. It's sort of that like being grabbed by the neck and pulled into the cloud. Um, and I think that you get pulled in sometimes, um, and not necessarily by God, but by, maybe this is heresy, uh, I don't know, <laughs> but but being pulled in by the communal representation of what God's dwelling is on earth now, which is uh, in the in the shape of a community. Um, and so I think we have to look for those grabbing moments um, when we are pulled right in to the holy cloud, where you don't really think you can enter, oh, that, that space is closed for me, but were pulled in and grabbed by the neck anyway and uh, welcomed to be a part of Sacred Conversation. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.